Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to First Baptist Church. As Jay mentioned, we are doing a bit of a different live stream this morning, and that is because we have a lot of stuff going on. But we are so thankful and excited to be able to share from God's Word with you this morning. We're also incredibly thankful that we have the opportunity to minister to one another and to serve one another. And we are thankful for our live stream friends who are out there listening. Uh, I know from at least a little bit of data that we can get, we know that we have people listening all over the country and even some international listeners to this teaching ministry and this podcast out of our ministry here at First Baptist Church. And I just want to say on behalf of our team, thank you so much for joining us each week. It is our prayer that these messages help build you up in your faith and help equip you to be better followers and more passionate followers of Jesus Christ as as you follow him with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Uh, If you need to get a hold of us this week, by the way. Um, We have a little bit of different things going on in our office. Here are some great ways that you can get a hold of us. Our email, the church office phone number, the pastor on call in case you can't get the church office because we're doing a lot of renovations. But the one I wanted to really highlight for you uh, right now is this prayer email. If you're walking through something and you need believers to gather around you in prayer, you can email this and you can tell us whether you want that to stay with just the pastoral team or the elders or if you want that to go to our entire prayer team. We, we let you make that call, but we'd love to be praying for you. It was really cool as we got ready for our elders meeting this last week. I had several people reach out to me last Sunday um, during our service. I'd said, if we can pray for you as elders in any way, please let me know. And, and we were able to pray for several of our church members uh, and, and people who worship with us here at first. And that was an incredible privilege to lift you up before the Father and to know that he hears our prayers. And even more though, I want to encourage you, God hears your prayers. Whatever you're walking through today, um, you can you can pray to God, and, and prayer is an act of dependence. One uh, theologian once said, and that's a great way for you to trust God and, and to practice that walk of trust. But we love to pray with you if there's any way we can in what you're facing today. The next thing I wanted to just remind you of, of is this: um, if you are a regular attender worshiper here at First, um, you can give either on our Give page at our website. That goes to support the ministry and the work of. First Baptist Church uh, and all the different ways this community touches the lives of believers throughout the world. Um, And so if you feel led of the Lord to do that and to partner with us in that way, that is an easy way that you can go online and you can give safely and securely today. Uh, It's been a fun week for us. Uh, The last couple days, we're recording this on Thursday, and for the last three days, we've had over 80 kids in our church every single day for our art camp. Uh, Here's some photos from our art camp that I'd like to share with you. Uh, Some really cool shots of a black room stuff that's going on. A really cool uh, charcoal, I believe it is, uh, down here that was being done downstairs. We also have some really cool um, other types of things uh, being crafted on glass. And it's just so cool to walk around and see all the things that God is doing in and through uh, the people 
here uh, for art camp. We had, again, over 80 kids. We had 38 incredible volunteers that, that gave of their time and their talents and their treasure this week. And it's been super fun to really show kids the love of God to remind them that God loves them, that God uh, wants them to love and serve him, and, and to open the scriptures with them during our time. We had that incredible privilege. Um, one of the things that one of the parents told one of the members of our team was this, and it is this I, I just love this. Uh, she told a member of our team, she said, your people, meaning the leaders here within our church, really care about my kids. And that means so much because we really do. We, we really care about every child that we have the opportunity to minister to and to point them to the one who can really meet their need, and that is Jesus. And so as we begin our time in the book of Ruth this morning, I want to invite you to just take a moment, whatever you're doing, Maybe you're sitting at your table, maybe you're sitting uh, at, at your couch, maybe you're driving your car right now. Take, take a moment and, and just pause. You know, the, the things that maybe you're thinking about right now, just say, God, I, I give these things to you because what we want to do in these next several moments is we want to focus on the Lord and we want to focus on his word. And so would you pray with me as we begin our study together? Our Father and our King, we thank you for your word, for how it teaches us and instructs us in righteousness. God, we thank you for your spirit who gives us power to follow you. Um, God, without your word, without your spirit, um, it, it would feel very uh, empty. We would constantly be wondering whether or not we could ever please you. And, and God, the reality is, is we can only ever please you, your word says, because of the finished work of Jesus. And, and it's, in, it's in his name that we come. It's in his power that we stand. And God, we thank you for the body of Christ gathered both here in our facility today, but also gathered around our country and around our world. May the moments that we have before you today remind us of your goodness and your grace as we study uh, for the last time in this series, the amazing book of Ruth and the, the faithful love of our good and gracious God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you, if you haven't done so already, to take your Bible and turn with me, please, to Ruth chapter four. We're gonna look at a couple of principles from Ruth chapter four as we finish the story. Uh, again, Ruth is an incredible story. We've been introduced to very important people. Uh, we were introduced to a family. The family uh, dad was named Elimelech. His name means my God is king in the first chapter. He took his wife and he took his family during a famine from their home in Bethlehem over to a place in Moab. And you can kind of see where that's at in this incredible photo right here. Over here we have Moab, and up here we have Bethlehem. Uh, in Bethlehem is where they lived. They went down into Moab to go find food, but in doing so, they left the place God intended them to live. And, and this is kind of a challenging season within the life of this family, within the life of this nation, because it's in the season, it's described as in the time of the judges. In the time of the judges, as we've said many times, but I just want to reiterate this for us, it's a time in which people do what is right in their own eyes, and there is no king in Israel. So there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of shifting loyalties. Largely, the people of Israel have said, Yahweh, we don't want to follow you. We want to instead want to follow the gods of this world, lowercase g, gods of this world. And God is, is going to continue to keep his faithful covenant 
with Israel despite their faithlessness. But he's going to use a family. And this is a family from a small town up in the hills of the Judean mountains up in here. Uh, a place that's not on directly on a major, major trade route. Uh, a place that is smaller than some of the other cities that may be in the general vicinity. But he's going to use a family from this place to further his purposes, to further his promises to his people. And uh, he's going to use a family that experiences great loss. As we look back, we can be reminded, Elimelech, this dad, he, he, he dies. His two sons, Machlon and Kilion, uh, sons to him and to his wife Naomi, they die. Now, they were married uh, to two Moabite women. And what this ended up leaving was two women, Naomi and uh, Ruth, and Orpah, so actually three women, uh, a mom and two daughters-in-law, leaving them as widows and leaving a mom without any kids. And in the ancient period, that was something that would leave them very vulnerable. Uh, because if you didn't have a male heir in order to care for you, you had no one to care for you in your older age. And you were, you were oftentimes destitute, you were poor, um, you had a hard time providing security for yourself. And so to be without a husband, to be without sons was a really big deal. In the middle of this, Naomi, we found out in the first chapter, she goes back to Bethlehem from where she was at in Moab. She, she hears that there is food there, and so she heads back. And in this process, one writer puts it this way, that while they're geographically going from Moab up to Bethlehem, it's not just geography that's going on. It's not just hopping on a camel or hopping on a donkey, or more likely, given their economic state, walking from Moab to Bethlehem. Um, it's not just a physical journey. There's also a spiritual journey that's going on here where she's going back to the land of her people. She's going back to the God of the land of her people, that is Yahweh. And we find in these first um, couple of chapters that there's this incredible loss that leads to incredible bitterness. But in the middle of this, we find that God meets Naomi's needs. He, he meets her needs through her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who chooses to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem, but it's not just a physical following. She actually says it this way in chapter one. She says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so she becomes a, a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is something because she's a Moabitess. And the Moabites and the Israelites didn't have a, a terribly great relationship. And, and there was some pretty good hostility and division between them because of some historical things that happen. We're introduced then to a guy by the name of Boaz. Boaz comes in as a kinsman redeemer, and we read that story last week. If you weren't here, or if you didn't log in, missed that, go ahead and listen to last week's message. You'll get a catch up on that story. But we find ourselves in Ruth chapter four, and Boaz has said to Ruth um, during that meeting, I will care for you. I will step in, and I will be your redeemer. And we find out here how this all then takes place in the next day. So please read with me the first eight verses of Ruth chapter 4. And Ruth chapter 4, it says this, Boaz went to the gate of the town and he sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. 
Boaz called him by name and said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Then Boaz took 10 of the men of the town's elders and he said, sit here. They sat down and he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the land of Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do so. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man to perpetuate the man's name on his property. The Redeemer replied, I, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin or destroy or spoil my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, because I can't redeem it. Verse 7, at an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the Redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy the property back yourself. We're going to take this in sections today. There's the first eight verses, and you get a bit of the flow and the flair of what's going on here in the story. And so as they're back here in Bethlehem, here's, here's what it's going to kind of look like. Boaz is going to gather a group of men from uh, the town to sit at the city gate because he wants to make a... Um, a a redemptive land transfer. But in order to do that, you needed the agreement or you needed the, um, the, the leaders of the town to say, yes, we see what you're doing and yes, we give it a stamp of approval. So what we find is that Boaz is around the, the gate. Now here's a photo of ruins at a place called Beersheba. So this is not Bethlehem, but it gives us kind of an idea of what an ancient town may have looked like in outlook here. So you have the ramp that would approach oftentimes times a city, you'd have an outer gate, an inner gate, and then inside the inner gate, you would have the city. This enabled some cities to be able to build up walls or defenses around it for protection from animals, from people, and all that kind of thing. Here's a model of an Iron Age city. So this would have been similar to the time of the story that we're reading. So you, again, you can see the ramp that's coming up. You see this outer gate, and then you come into the city. So then it may not be an outer gate and an inner gate, but, but you can see that, that if you were to go in and out of a city, you would come through the gate because they would have a, a certain degree of walled protection outside of all of the houses that comprise the city which they're in. Uh, an, archaeologic, an archaeological example um, that comes from this, if I can get my thing to go to the next one, yep, is here's the inner gatehouse back at Beersheba, the first photo I showed you. Um, so you can see that Boaz probably gathered a whole bunch of men and townspeople, and he, and he lined them up inside the city gate in order to have a meeting. So they're having this town hall, if you will, and, and he is going to strategically gather them to resolve the vow that he made to Ruth. And so as the, as the community gathers around to uh, have this important part of legalizing uh, decisions, you've got all these people gathered around and he, and he engages one of the people, the, the person he's really looking for, and that's the person who has the first right of redemption 
to the land um, of Naomi and her family. Now, the reason he has the first right of redemption is most likely because he's the closest relative, and so it goes to him. And we know from the story here that Boaz is next in line. So before Boaz can do anything significant, first he has to engage this closer relative to say, are you willing to be the Goel? Are you willing to be the redeemer of this property? And that's what he does as we, as we read it. He gathers these 10 men, and it's interesting because this 10 men uh, in, in, in Judaism today, it's called a minyan. It, it's a gathering of, of 10 men or 10 people um, that are supposed to be there to engage in certain actions of business. So he, ge- he engages these 10 men, these elders. He says, sit here. They sit down. He looks to this other redeemer, this gentleman, and he says, hey, Naomi, who has returned from the land of Moab, she's selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. That's verse 3. I wanted to inform you, verse 4, buy it back in the presence of those seated here in the presence of the elders of my people, and if you want to redeem it, do so. So he's saying, this is your call, man. You can choose to do this. But he also gives him this qualifier. He says, but if you don't want to, tell me so I will know, because I'm the next one in line to redeem it. And, And he seems to be indicating that he would redeem it if this gentleman chose not to. And so as they're gathered around at this place, uh, it's f- the situation is first presented as a land issue, and then it's presented at, secondarily as a greater family issue that's going on here. So we have to kind of separate these two things. First, he says, will you redeem the land? And, and the man says, yes, I will redeem the land. So that meant that he was going to pay a sum of money in order to buy it from Naomi. That resource would then transfer into his house, and Naomi would have some of those monies because she has no heirs at this time. She's got no sons of which to pass it down to or anything. Um, She's going to be the one who's going to be living off of this sum of money, and then this land would stay in this man's favor uh, for the rest of his life. Um, The Torah actually speaks about this. In Leviticus 25, it says this, verses uh, 23 through 25 in Leviticus, it says, the land is not to be permanently sold because It is mine, God says, and you are only aliens and temporary residents on my land. Here's the significance of the land. You are to allow the redemption of any land you occupy. If your brother becomes destitute and sells part of his property, his nearest relative may come and redeem what his brother has sold. This is the principle that's going on here. But Boaz, in this Um, conversation, he ties something else to this as well. Because you have Naomi, who's destitute and who is poor, but you also have Ruth the Moabitess. Now, many times in the the text here, she is called Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the Moabitess. It's giving a, a descriptor that, that while she may be a proselyte to Israel, in other words, she may have come and sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh, um, she is still identified, at least legally, as being from Moab. So the problem here is as Boaz introduces the land thing, the gentleman who's the Kingsman Redeemer, the Goel, says, yes, I will redeem the land. But then Boaz inserts a secondary aspect into this. He he says in verse 5, 
after this gentleman said, I want to redeem it in verse 4, Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. And, and this introduces a bit of a challenging thing. Now, we've talked a little bit in the past about Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage is when uh, you have a family and one of the wives... Uh, her husband dies, what would happen is if she had no male heirs, God set a, uh, a system in place for her to be able to go to her brother-in-law and say, will you uh, partner with me to produce heirs on behalf of my family's name, my husband? Um, what seems to be happening here, though, is that there's a levirate marriage kind of going on that Boaz intersects in, in, into this. And the reason I say kind of is because Leverite marriage had to do with the brother-in-laws of that, um, of that widow uh, being able to step in on that count. And here we have not a brother-in-law because uh, Ruth has no more brother-in-laws. The, the, her only brother-in-law has passed away and that was back in the land of Moab. So what we have here is Boaz is saying a, a, a good thing to do, a, a responsible thing to do, a caring thing to do is now not only to acquire the man, but also to acquire Naomi and to acquire um, Ruth, who was the wife of Mahlon, who was Naomi and Elimelech's son. And this uh, is done in order to perpetuate the man's name on his property. So now the, the redeemer in question has a choice to make. Will he redeem not only the land, but also Ruth? So it's a land and a family issue. But the sticky situation here with regard to the family is a couple fold. Uh, number one, um, we don't know this for sure, but he may have already had a family of his own, which, which then creates a, not just an acquisition of land, but it creates the responsibility of caring for more dependents. It also creates the responsibility of um, if uh, he has a son through Ruth, that son would then become numbered as a son of of um, Ruth's first husband. Right? It gets a little confusing a little uh, in this kind of a story. Uh, but it perpetuates that family name on that property. So what happens then is, the is that the, the land that he would acquire would then be given back to that son. So it wouldn't be a part of his land. It'd be a part of Ruth's line of the family land. So that could be one of the issues of why he gives a little bit of pause with the second one. Um, the other issue that is at play is that often we are told that she is Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess. And this is a big deal because um, Moab, as I've said, does not have a great relationship with Israel. In fact, here's what the Torah says about Moab. They say about Moab, well, I'll get there in just a moment. Here we go. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 and 4, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, may ever enter the Lord's assembly. And it gives a reason why. This is because they did not meet you with food and water on the journey after you came to Egypt. And, and so I would say it this way. Leverite marriage is not obligatory upon this man, but Boaz is saying it's the right thing to do to care for this 
family to not only acquire the land, but also to take responsibility willingly for the people. But now this redeemer, this Goel, has a choice he has to make. Can I care for my family? Can I care for this family? But I think he also has a religious choice to make. Can I care for my family and by, by taking in this land, but can I marry Ruth, who is a Moabite? Now, one of the things we've learned about Ruth in our study is that, that she's not just a Moabite. Um, she has left the country of her people, and she has come to the land um, that God gave his people Israel. She's married into a Jewish family. Um, she is a person whose character, and Boaz makes the statement he, back in chapter 2, and, and he says, man, Ruth, you have an incredible character. And in between chapter 2 and chapter 3, she is called a, a mighty woman of nobility or a woman of high character. And, and so she's a person who distinguishes herself in her actions, that she doesn't act like a Moabite. She acts in, in response to who she is um, coming underneath the wings of the God of Israel. But for him, one of the things he's going to ask is, can I marry a Moabite? And this goes to the letter of the law versus maybe the intention or the principle behind the law. So, so those are two different things that are, that are going on here in the story. What, what we see in the story is that the Redeemer says, I can't redeem it myself, this is verse 6, or I will ruin, and the word ruin there could, could mean ruin or destroy or spoil my own inheritance. So he's basically saying, if I take this on, it's going to do something to those who receive the inheritance that I have down line. So as I've mentioned, you could take this uh, a couple of different ways. He could have concern for his financial obligations to his own heirs and how a child from Ruth would then receive the land he was set to acquire from Naomi. Um, but he could also be concerned about spiritual contamination through Ruth the Moabite. And if this is the case, as one scholar argues, he would be making, or he would be holding Ruth's ethnic heritage over her proven commitment to the Lord and his people. Uh, you are sensible people. I'll let you study that to, de to determine what, how to best understand that. But both of those seem to be possible solutions as to why he is saying, no, I cannot acquire Ruth the Moabitess, and I can't acquire the land, therefore. And so he says to Boaz, he says, take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. And in verse 7 here, it's an interesting thing. It gives us like a, a little parenthesis. At an earlier period in Israel, the man removed a sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make a matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. And so I wore my flip-flops or my sandals today in order to say, here's basically what happens. The, the goel uh, who has first right of redemption, he takes his sandal off, sandal probably would look like something like this. This is from uh, the 1500s uh, BCE uh, during the Thebes dynasty in Egypt. He would have taken off his sandal, something like this, and he would have handed it over to Boaz, and that would have been the way that they would exchange the property uh, that is going on here in this rite of redemption, making this legally binding. And it says in verse 8, so the re 
redeemer removed his sandal. He said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. And, and now we can kind of jump into the next section of text here, uh, where Boaz then willingly and voluntarily takes upon himself the responsibility to redeem both the property and also to take responsibility for Ruth and for Naomi and their family. Boaz says in verse 9 of Ruth chapter 4, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are my witnesses today that I'm buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Machlon. So he's, he's tying back to those male descendants. Uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, Ruth's husband, uh, Machlon, and then Kilion, who was the other brother. He says, I will also acquire Ruth the Moabitess. Machlon's widow as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his home. You are witnesses today. So he's repeating this again. You're witnesses of what I'm doing. And he says, by the way, here's what I'm doing. You are witnesses. And notice what happens in verse 11. The elders and all the people who were at the gate said, we are witnesses. So they're seeing this and they're saying, yes, we affirm what you are doing today. We are receiving what you are doing today. And notice the blessing that they give. May the Lord, this is the covenantal name of God, make the woman, the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. Those are the matriarchs of, of the 12 tribes. Um, build the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah and famous in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez and the, the son of Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So he's name dropping a little bit here. When it talks about um, Perez, who's the son of Tamar born to Judah, Judah was the patriarch of this tribe that is in Bethlehem. And Judah is... Uh, a person who engaged in Leverite marriage. It's a crazy story that comes from Genesis where Tamar, her husband died, her next husband died uh, through through Leverite marriage. And then Judah didn't want to give his third um, son to her. And as the story goes, he ends up... Um, siring a, a progeny through his daughter-in-law, um, Tamar. So it's a bit of a crazy story. Um, and, and in it, she is shown actually to be righteous because what the righteous thing would have been to do would be for there to be this provision for her as a widow. All that aside, that's a whole other story, perhaps for a whole other day. Um, there's this blessing given upon Boaz and given upon Ruth. But I want you to think about how, how big this, this commitment Boaz is making actually is. Um, we, we actually underappreciate, I think, many times the importance of the community in making major life decisions. Now, now communities can get things wrong. In, in fact, majority rule is not a guarantee that what is right is actually what happens. But Boaz um, asked the community to be witnesses. And by doing so, they affirm the actions that he is taking to acquire both the land belonging to Naomi and her family and to Ruth inquiring the, the, the woman, Ruth the Moabitess, as his wife. Uh, again, I come back to this phrase, Ruth the Moabitess, because for most of the book, she's referred to by this um, nationality, by, by this identification with Moab, uh, with just a few exceptions. And, and in verse um, 
In verse 13, we find this. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he was intimate with her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And I love it. It says he took Ruth. I think one of the things that's going on here is that uh, the, the question is whether or not they would allow Ruth the Moabitess not to just be a God-fearer in their land, uh, a worshiper of Yahweh, but to become part of the tribes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here you have the community saying, yes, we are witnesses that you are taking her as your wife, that you are providing for her. And, and Boaz, I, th- I think, really understands this well, given his pedigree, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But, but he took Ruth, verse 13, not Ruth the Moabitess, he took Ruth, and Ruth became his wife. And the Lord enabled her to conceive and notice what it says in verse 14. The, the, the woman said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name be well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And so, so here you've got blessing given upon Boaz being the Goel, the kinsman redeemer for this family. You have, you have blessing given to Naomi. And if you remember back to chapter one, at the end of chapter one, she said, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara because I'm bitter. She'd experienced just a lot of loss in her life and through the ministry of Ruth as a friend, through the provision of God, through Boaz as a redeemer, and now through this, this gift, this, this little one, this little baby given to Ruth and given to Boaz, she's going to experience not just care through, through Ruth and Boaz, but she's going to experience provision through this young son who will care for her and who will renew her and who will sustain her. Um, and I love how Ruth is just exalted here one more time in verse 15. Your daughter-in-law who loves you, right? This is that kind of, I will always be there kind of love. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth left all of the things she knew to follow Naomi. But in doing so, she's, she's even more coming under the wings or coming on under the care of the God of Naomi. Uh, God is becoming personal to Ruth. Uh, And as Ruth has worked hard for her mother-in-law and cared for her, it says here that that she is better to you than seven sons. In other words, this, this is a godly woman. This is a woman whose character is unlike any other people in the time of the judges. Like, like her character shines in the middle of such a broken situation and such a broken culture. And we see how Naomi, who's gone from bitter, now to being full again. It says in verse 16, Naomi took the child, she placed him on her lap, and she took care of him. Verse 17 says, The neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So, so the son of Ruth becomes a, a son of Naomi in a proverbial sense. Um, he, he becomes one who, who in many ways God uses not just to provide for Naomi, not to just further Naomi's line, but he becomes one 
through whom God will actually be writing an even bigger story of love and faithfulness to his people. And we get that little glimmer here when it says they named him Obed, which means servant. And his, his, he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. David goes on to be the most important king, the most important earthly human, uh, non-divine king in Israel's history. And, and, and as this important king, in fact, in fact, the name David means beloved, uh, as this most important king, he would go on to rule, uh, even despite his own failings, he would go on to rule with a heart like God's. In other words, um, when God goes to seek a king and he seeks out David, he says, I choose David, who's the smallest of this family, because he's the one who has a heart like mine, a, a heart for the poor, a heart for the oppressed, a heart for justice, a heart to do what's right. Again, if you know David's story, you know that all of David's story is not all David doing the right things. But it's this pattern of David's life where he comes back to God and he says, God, I've messed up. Have mercy on me. And, and we see that, that he's a person who recognizes how much God forgives and demonstrates chesed to his people. And I think that comes through his family line. A couple moments ago, I, I mentioned the importance of Boaz and his family line and, and, and why I think Boaz steps into this. And I want to talk about that for a minute because we, we come to the end of this and we've, we've talked about Naomi, we've talked about her family, we've talked about Ruth, we've talked about the, the, the townspeople, we've talked about Boaz. And we can get uh, stuck sometimes or lost, rightfully so, in all of these different stories that, that are being woven together to make this tapestry. And sometimes we can miss God's grand story that sits behind all of this. Uh, <clears throat> what I want you to see here is this genealogy. And as Westerners, we go, you want me to know what the family tree is? Yes, I want you to know what the family tree is. Why? Because it's in the text and because it matters deeply. And in fact, this, this is like a crescendo to the end. Sometimes there's like falling action at the end of a story. This one is like, hey, let me show you how I'm going to write the story. It's almost as if God is saying that. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez followed Hezron. Hezron followed Ram, who followed Aminadab. Aminadab followed Nashon, who, followed, who fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, in our story, who fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, who fathered David. So we get a little bit of the story that's going on in there. What's really cool is to understand what's going on here with some of these names, especially with relationship to Boaz. Uh, we studied this a couple weeks ago in our Adult Bible Connections class as we were looking at Matthew. This name Salmon uh, uh, kicks in at a very important point in another genealogy that begins the whole Newer Testament. And I won't read the whole genealogy, but I'll read the first verse. This, uh, this is the historical record of the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abram had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had Judah and his brothers, Judah had Perez, Zerah by Tamar. Okay, so Tamar comes into the story again. Um, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron followed Aram, Aram followed, fathered Amenadab, Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nachshon. You know these names now. Nachshon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered 
Jesse, Jesse fathered King David. What I want you to see is in the, in the genealogy that describes how Jesus comes in the line of David, you have Ruth's name inserted in here. But before that, you have Boaz's name. And, and you'll notice that Salmon, who, who is in both the Ruth chapter 4 um, genealogy and in the Matthew genealogy, we, we find that, that um, Boaz is fathered by Salmon through a, a lady by the name of Rahab. Now, Rahab and Ruth are, are two very important women in the Bible. Rahab was a person who lived in the, in the city of Jericho, and when the people of Israel came into the land, um, she was not an Israelite, but, but she harbored two spies from Israel who came to scout out Jericho. And as she harbored them and she distracted people to keep them safe and she sent them back out of the city, um, the, the people of Israel, the, the two spies made a promise with her um, to, to keep her safe if she did a couple of things. Um, what's amazing is they kept her safe. What's amazing is that this Gentile woman marries a guy by the name of Salmon, who becomes the dad of a guy by the name of Boaz. And then Boaz marries this gal by the name of Ruth, who, like her husband's mom, Rahab, was a person who was not an Israelite, who was outside of that covenant, but was a God-fearer. My point is this. I think one of the things that Boaz sees is that in, in Ruth, he sees this is a God-fearing woman. Just like he had seen with his mom, who was not an Israelite, who became a proselyte to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he looks at the story of Ruth as going, I've seen the story before. How God takes people outside of the people of Israel and inserts them into his plan. And see, that's what God does all the time. God, God's intention for Abraham and his descendants was that they would be uh, a blessing to the nations around them. And they're going to be a blessing in, in several different ways. Um, that they would proclaim who Yahweh is, that they would live for Yahweh in a land filled with people who are like judges, who do what's right, and, and, and who want to act as if there's no king in Israel. But not only that, he's going to, God is going to write and craft an amazing grand story in which he will use people from all nation, tribes, and tongue to bring him glory, and he'll actually use people, um, even Gentile women to come into the line of Israel who would then lead down to even the point of giving birth to the Messiah Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. And so there's this great redemptive story that God is telling here. Um, and it's woven in the small details. So you might say, how do we begin to apply the truths of this passage to our time today? And I hope you asked that question. So glad you did. Um, here's the big point I want you to take home. Um, God is weaving together a grand story. And our invitation is to trust God's grand story even in the times of the judges in which we live. And, and you might say, how do we trust God's grand story in the times of the judges? And I was thinking about this earlier, and, and I love Psalm 37. Psalm 37 says this, Do not be agitated by evildoers, 
Do not envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants, right? It's really easy, the psalmist says here, to become agitated or, or to fret over people who are doing evil. It's even easy to envy or to want the things that the people who do wrong seem to receive. But the psalmist qualifies it here. He says, don't, don't, don't be agitated by that. Don't envy. They wither quickly like the grass and they wilt like tender green plants. What's he saying? One of the things he's saying is that in light of eternity, it is more important to do that which is right and that which is good, that which God instructs his people to do and that which God wants to do through us than it is to be consumed with those who do evil. Certainly at the point in time in which Ruth and Boaz were living, they had the opportunity to do things their own way. But they chose rather to trust God, to trust his plan, even though they didn't know how it was going to turn out, even though they couldn't have written it in such great detail, even going down to the point of the Messiah Jesus would be born from their line. They didn't know that, but they recognized a spiritual principle that... Um, Today, it comes and it goes. Um, but we are eternal beings, and in the light of eternity, it matters more to walk with God, to follow God, to do what is right, regardless of the consequences. And that's what it means to trust, which is what this psalm is talking about. The next two verses say this. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desire. Trust in the Lord is such an important thing. And, and this idea of trust has to do with active dependence upon God and his word. It, it means to live in light of what God has said and believe that what God has said is actually true. And to live in that way. It means to faithfully walk after him and to leave the results in his hands. It, it, it means to worship God in the midst of your circumstances, knowing that it's better to do what is right. It's better to have a, a vital, uh, um, a, a passionate relationship with God right here and right now than it is to take joy or to take delight in the things that are wicked. God calls his people to rest in his care, to take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desire. Sometimes people ask me, well, it, will I get what I want if I delight in the Lord? And, and I just want to say, as it's written here, if we take delight in the Lord, guess what? Our heart's desire will be the Lord. And so we will receive everything we could ever imagine. That does not mean that we will have everything that we might want in this world from an earthly point of view. But it means from God's point of view, oh, we rest secure because he is a good, faithful, loving, and gracious God who meets us in our need. I love the next verse that says this. Commit your way to the Lord. This act of volition. Actually, the word commit is an interesting one. It means to roll or to turn. And it's often used in like to roll or to turn a stone as it goes down a hill or something like that. It, it, it has this idea of what you're going to do today, commit it to God. Say, God, what do you want me to do? All right, God, I'm going to take by faith and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set that action now down. I'm going to roll it like a stone down a hill that's not going to stop until it meets the end. I'm going to commit 
commit my way to the Lord. I'm going to trust in him and I, because he is going to act. Where I'm going to be inadequate in myself, which is a lot of places, I'm going to trust that God is going to act on my behalf, making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like the noon day. The, the life that God is inviting us into is a life of trust. It, it, it's a life of dependence. It, it, it's a life of experiencing God's grace in all of the things in which we face today. And that's my invitation to you. Wherever you find yourself today, m- maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and, and I want to just say to you today, I'd love to have a conversation with you. You can contact me through one of the emails uh, listed at the beginning of our time together. You can give me a call. I would love to tell you about what it means to have new life in Jesus Christ today. Uh, If you're a follower of Jesus here today, um, God wants you, invites you, calls you to trust him. You may not know all the details of your life. You may not know how faithfulness in a small detail today will work itself out 30 years from now. Guess what? You don't have to worry about how it's going to work itself out now from 30 years from now. All you need to focus on is, Lord, what do you want me to do here and now first? Secondly, we go to God and we say, God, you want to will and to work your way through me. And If I'm honest, there's nothing that I can do that is good apart from God working through me. And so as we say, God, I want to do your will, right on the back end of that prayer, we need to say, God, would you work and will in me to do what is right and good in the situation that faces me today? I'm more and more convinced, friends, that following God is less about the big things in our life and it's a lot more about the small decisions that we encounter each day. It's the small decisions that, that roll into the bigger decisions that we face. But when our eyes are set on God, when we're seeking to trust Him and commit our way to Him, Man, that's where God's grand story can be written in and through our lives for the glory of his name, because that's what this is all about. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you um, that you take broken vessels and you redeem them through the blood of Jesus, the one who has died and rose again so that we might have life. You take broken vessels And you use them for your purposes. God, as it says in your word, you are the potter. We human beings made in your image, we are clay. Would you mold and shape us into the people that you want us to be today? So that as we go out into the world that we face each week, as we have conversations with people, as we send text messages, as we scroll social media, God, God, as we engage in all the things that you've placed before us, God, we want to commit our way to you. We want to commit our journey to you. We want to commit our pathway to you. And God, we thank you um, that in your grace, you are always with your people. That you promise to be our light and to be our salvation. That you promise to lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So God, thank you for the promise to meet our needs today according to the amazing riches of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.
friends, thanks so much for joining us today. If there's any way we can serve you in your journey of following Jesus, we'd love to be able to do that. May the love of God go with you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ empower you to follow and to serve him in the walk he's called you to today. May you go out and go forth knowing that the details of your story matter and that God is using your faithful walking after him to write and to paint and to draw a grand story that one day in eternity we will have more clarity on and we'll look back and go, God, thank you for using me, for working through me for your kingdom's sake. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.